Hi, how are you doing? I'm walking through a country churchyard. It's mid-morning, the sun's out, a little bit of a breeze. In summer, this churchyard is an absolute riot of wildflowers. But it's still a little bit early in the year. So amid the graves there's thick, lush grass and above it, dead seed heads from last year. The church is built on a little rise, as churches often are. And from it I can see out past the village houses into open countryside, woods and fields. My name's Melissa Harrison, and I'm a novelist and nature writer. I'm lucky enough to live in rural Suffolk, and I can walk out of my cottage into open countryside without passing another human being. So from now on, through spring and summer and into autumn, I'm going to help keep you in touch with the outside world and the changing seasons. Welcome to a new weekly podcast, The Stubborn Light of Things. and gone into the woods because I want to introduce you to a bird. That very mechanical dink, dink, dink you can hear is the chiff-chaff. And the reason the chiff-chaff is important is because it's the first of our summer migrants that we hear each year. It's not always the first to arrive, but it is the first one that we hear sing. Edward Lord Grey of Falloden, who wrote a book in 1927 called The Charm of Birds, which was very famous at the time, said, Alone of all the warblers, the chiff-chaff has given us the right to expect him in March. He is the forerunner of the rush of songbirds that is on its way to us and will arrive in April, and thereafter enrich our woods, meadows and gardens with still further variety and quality of song. This is why the first hearing of a chiff-chaff moves us so each spring. He is a symbol a promise, an assurance of what's to come. I mean, it's not the best song, is it, really? And it's not the most attractive of birds, either. It's a small, um, usually described as dumpy, which I take exception to, being five foot two, but a dumpy warbler, olive green, um, not much to look at. Very small, six to eight grams. But uh, cheeringly, it's not listed as being at risk at all. It's still widespread. 
Chifchaf is the subject of a long-running correspondence in the Times where people write in with uh, reports of their first um, hearing of the Chifchaf each year. And it's been a little bit spoiled by the fact that uh, global warming means that some of them now overwinter here. And so they sing all the way through the colder months. Chifchaf comes here from the Mediterranean and Western Africa. It flies thousands of miles, as all migrating birds do. And I find that not just fascinating for the question of how they do it, especially the, the first-year ones that have never done it before, but just the thought of these tiny little feathered creatures, all wings and heartbeat, aloft, particularly over the sea and in the dark. Just imagine it. Freezing cold ocean beneath them, absolute blackness all around, and on they go, on they go, into the unknown, just keep going. They just keep going. I find that incredibly moving. On the stubborn light of things, we're going to try and have a guest each week. Um, because of the travel restrictions, I've asked people to record themselves and send in their segments. And this week we're starting with Andy Beer. Andy's written a book called Everyday Nature, How Noticing Nature Can Quietly Change Your Life. And that's something I can completely attest to. It was starting to notice nature around me when I lived in London that completely transformed my whole ability to survive there and, and, and change the course of my life. It's just come out. Um, it's published by the National Trust at 12.99. Um, so we're going to hear from Andy now. He is the National Trust's director of the Midlands and he helped develop the brilliant campaign from a few years ago uh, called 50 Things to Do Before You're 11 and 3 Quarters. Hello, I'm Andy Beer, author of Everyday Nature. I'm really interested in the idea of how nature can help your endurance. And in fact, that was the reason why I started writing a book in the first place. At this time of year, in the spring, I get really excited about everything that's happening. It seems as though every day there's a new thing about to arrive, whether it's a brimstone or a, a bird migrating from the Sahara, or whether it's flowers in the garden blossom in the tree outside, outside my street. But actually, what I noticed was in wintertime, I was really starting to struggle, particularly October, November and December, because it felt like I'd lost all my enthusiasm for nature. And I started to think about, well, how can I address that? Because it's something I need for my own well-being, this, this, this notion of being excited by the natural world. So I started to make a list of things to look for in October. I got very excited by the, the notion of noticing the geese arriving from Siberia. Um, and, and, and that really started something for me, thinking about the winter highlights as well as the spring and summer ones. And so now I, I take as much delight in the arrival of field fairs and red wings uh, in winter as I do in the arrival of swallows and swifts in the spring. I also 
started to get interested in mushrooms uh, and also to really notice the the small winter delights uh, yellow lichen on, on elder trees and finch flocks um, dancing in the breeze on on those cold clattering windy winter days of course in april it's easy because blossom is incredible and we 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 don't celebrate it enough in this country really because in Japan, it's an obsession as a nation, and our seasons are as good as theirs. Uh, and we, and uh, where I live, there's a, a from the blackthorn blossom late in February, through the fruit trees blossoming in March and April, all the way to the incredible displays of hawthorn in, in May. It's a, it's a great delight. I'm really interested also in the um, arrival of spring birds, and I've started to set bird songs as my ringtone to help me learn new ones so i've had willow warbler on since christmas and um, i can't wait for the arrival of the first willow warbler um, early in april before then of course you get the chiff chaffs um, a sound which takes a while to learn it sounds a bit like a great tip and then of course after that it's the the swallows and the swifts really and the house martins uh, my my favorite birds of the of the springtime there's something about observing birds arrive from so far away that's really, really helpful for your sense of well-being, I think. It's very easy to get wrapped up, particularly at the moment, in the notion that human beings are, are at the centre of things. And yet, if you observe nature, things are carrying on regardless of our current concerns. The birds are still nesting. The blossom is still blossoming, uh, and most importantly, these tiny birds are making their trip halfway around the world to come and spend their summers here and, and raise their young and, and fly back. Uh, and I think it's a great reminder that we can of the connectedness of things. Um, in spring, we've got this great arrival from Africa, and then in the winter, we have the same arrivals from from the northern lands of Siberia and Greenland and uh, and northeastern Europe. So, in terms of thinking about endurance, feeling small and feeling humble feels like a core part of that for me. And noticing something every day and taking the time to, to build that into your, your life in the same way as you might build in five-a-day fruit or, or half an hour of exercise every day um, is something I'm determined to keep trying to do over the next few months. lovely here the nettles are coming up and there's celandines in bloom on the on the banks of the stream and everywhere there's flood debris because this was underwater just a few weeks ago I tried to come this way with my dog and we had to turn back the water had risen so high it covered the bridge and for I don't know 100 yards in either direction it was it was standing water and thick mud And that's the floodplain doing exactly what it should do. But now it's all drained away. The ground's dry. And new life is springing up everywhere. Amid the young nettles, there's cow parsley coming up. And violets. Purple dead nettle. The odd daisy here, although not as many as in the village.
there's little honesty seedlings. And this autumn they'll be hung with their papery moons. You might be able to hear some farm machinery in the distance. Despite the lockdown, the farmers are out working, providing food for the rest of us. You know, it's amazing looking around at this floodplain and imagining how it was just a few weeks ago. It was hard to imagine that life would return to it, really. It looked so drowned and miserable. And now it's lush and bursting with life. I'm passing through a gate into a sunny field. Like a lot of people that are interested in the natural world, I'm a little bit obsessed with the Parson naturalist Gilbert White. He published a book in 1789 called The Natural History and Antiquities of Selborne. And it's never been out of print since then. It's gone through more than 300 editions. And it was one of the books um, which soldiers very commonly took to the trenches in the First World War to remind them of home. His book and his diaries as well are beloved, um, not just for the quality of their scientific information, but for their humour and their humanity and the closeness of his observation. Gilbert White was the model, really, for the Parson Naturalist, a group of men who were often very highly educated, but sent to rural parishes. They didn't always have a great deal to do, so they went out and spent their time recording the natural world and engaging in uh, long-running debates about things like where birds went in winter. People didn't realise that birds could migrate such great distances, which is miraculous when you think about it. Um, so lots of people believe that perhaps they hibernated in the mud at the bottom of ponds. Gilbert was part of this great wave of scientific inquiry. But what I love him for is that he's such a great noticer. He walked the bounds of his parish daily and he noticed and was curious about everything from bird behaviour and the swarming patterns of midges to an interesting echo he found under a bridge. Everything really was grist to his mill. And being able to get a great deal out of a small space is important, I think. It makes me think of the great Irish poet Patrick Kavanagh, who said, to know fully even one field is a lifetime's experience. A gap in a hedge, a smooth rock surfacing a narrow lane, a view of a woody meadow, the stream at the junction of four small fields, these are as much as a man can fully experience. So for each episode in this podcast, I'm going to bring you a few diary entries from Gilbert White from the date which we transmit. So here he is writing about April the 6th. April the 6th, 1773. I'm informed that three swallows appeared over a mill pond at Bramshot on Sunday, March 28th. 
They were seen over the paper mill pond by Mr. Pym. April the 6th, 1789. Timothy the tortoise heaves up the sod under which he is buried. Daffodil blows. April the 6th, 1790. Young goslings on the common. April the 6th, 1791. The cuckoo arrives and is seen and heard. The apricots have no blossoms. They lost all their buds by the birds. Redstart returns and appears on the grass plot. April the 6th, 1793. On the 6th of last October, I saw many swallows hawking for flies around the plester. And a row of young ones with square tails sitting on a spar of the old ragged thatch of the empty house. This morning, Dr. Chandler and I caused the roof to be examined, hoping to have found some of these birds in their winter retreat. But we did not meet with any success, though Benham searched every hole and every breach in the decayed roof. Well, that's proof, if proof were needed, of why I should have a proper producer making this podcast for me. I've just been watching a male and a female kestrel in joyful display flight, diving and tumbling and calling to each other. And when I went to switch the recorder on, the batteries were flat. So I'm very sorry not to have been able to bring you that. In 2014, um, I started writing a monthly nature notebook column for the Times. When I started it, I lived in London. A couple of years later, I moved here to Suffolk. Here's a couple of extracts from back when I was a city dweller. April 2016. It's been a sewage farm, a training ground for the local civil defence unit, and a pottery and brickworks. Vast amounts of rubble was dumped there following the Blitz. But on Bank Holiday Monday, I stood in South Norwood Country Park in South London and heard a Chetty's warbler sing. Ex-industrial areas can become rich wildlife habitats and are often very important to local people too. This low-lying, wet, 47-hectare site opened as a local nature reserve in 1989 and now boasts bat and butterfly walks and dawn chorus outings, while volunteers meet for monthly work days to clear scrub and brambles, plant trees and carry out conservation work. For both people and wildlife, it's a precious urban resource. We may have been in SE25, but my dog Scout was in countryside mode. She put up a brace of pheasants, stalked small mammals in the undergrowth and streaked off after a big dog fox. All the while a kestrel hovered over us, working hard to keep still in the last of Storm Katie's winds. But it was the Chetty's warbler that made my day. My third ever, and the first I've identified on my own. Belting out from dense briars edging the water, its strident and unmistakable songs stopped me in my tracks. Excitedly checking the bird track website, I could see I was the second person in recent days to report one there. This little bird has come to us from the continent, first breeding here in 1973. There are still only thought to be 2,000 pairs, mostly near the coasts of the southeast, southwest, and East Anglia, but slowly making inroads into the rest of the British Isles. The mild winter we've had in the south will have been good for them. They don't cope well in the cold. 
Chetty's warblers are shy and hard to see, and without hearing this one, I'd never have known it was there. But a year ago, I would have walked past without recognising its song, and five years before that, I'd never heard of them. I'd probably just have thought it was a wren. For me, learning to recognise birds and their songs is about making the world richer. Spring, now, isn't just about birdsong, but particular birds in particular spots. Each year I learn to recognise a couple more. Each year my local streets and parks become more interesting places. It's like a magic trick. April 2017. It's breeding season, and after several years without any nests, a pair of blue tits have moved into one of our boxes. They're still at the building stage, the female carrying in scraps of moss, the male shadowing her. I'm waiting for the day she disappears, at which point I'll know she's incubating the eggs, usually eight to ten, and possibly making up more than her own body weight. When the chicks hatch after a couple of weeks, the adults will pick up the pace. They'll both be in and out every few seconds, bearing caterpillars, until the nestlings fledge. I love having a nest in the garden, and always feel protective of the baby birds. A few years back, two great tits raised a brood in another of our boxes, and I calculated when they would fledge, mindful of cats and the sparrowhawk whose beat our garden is on. On the allotted day, I stationed myself in a garden chair with binoculars and a water pistol. I'm proud to say they all survived. I'm walking along the edge of a field of oilseed rape in bright yellow flower. I'm heading back to the cottage. There's a buzzard soaring above me on a thermal. In fact, there's two. It's notable because we don't get them in this part of the country that often. Some of you might be wondering, hello Bee. <laughs> Some of you might be wondering about the title of this podcast. It's a line from a poem by Alison Brackenbury uh, called Brockhampton. Um, Alison is one of my favourite living poets and she writes beautifully about the natural world in particular. I first read this poem some years ago and it just landed with me in a way that poems do sometimes. It took root and I've talked about it and written about it um, many times since then. She's been kind enough um, to give me permission to use it. She's also been kind enough to record it for us. So here at the end of the podcast is Alison reading Rockhampton. Her selected poems are out now from Carcanet um, and the collection is called Gallop. Here she is. Thank you for listening. Brockhampton. The land was too wet for ploughing, yet it is done. Even the stones of the ridges lie sulky and brown. The roads are a slide of mud. The wet sky is blank as the chink of the hawk's perfect eye. A blink before the dark comes down drops the peregrine sun. The land glows like an awkward face. Broken posts by which sheep graze shine pale as growing wood. Above the last crow's wings cannot frighten from my blood the stubborn light 
of things. <laughs>